Hey, good morning. It is good to be here with you this morning. And uh, the plan is we will um, be in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through 22. So what I want to do is I want to read the scripture. And you can follow along if you would like in your copy of the scripture. Or you're also welcome uh, to just listen as I read uh, Galatians three fifteen to 22. And then I'm going to uh, pray, asking God to help us as we take a few minutes in his word this morning. And then we'll jump into the message. So here's what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19. I only say verse 19 in the event that you're totally lost. I have now helped you there. You're welcome. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring could come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is God's word. Will you join me as we pray? God, we thank you for your word this morning. We're asking in this moment, God, that you would, by your spirit, give us your help that we would understand your word that you would move in us to show us those ways in which we need to repent, to show us those areas, Lord, where you want to encourage and strengthen us, and especially, God, having spent some time in your word, we are praying that you would make us more like Jesus. And we pray this in his name we pray, amen. Now, Galatians 3 is one section that could be uh, really talked about and thought about in, in one message, but it's kind of a long bit. And so it's been bro broken up into a couple of sections. Andy talked about the first section last week. And what you might want to do if you get a few minutes this afternoon is maybe read the entire chapter of Galatians 3. It won't take you that, that long to read Galatians 3 to get a, get a vibe for the whole thing. In fact, maybe you even sit down and read the entire book of Galatians. It's only six chapters. It might take you 20 minutes to read it, 15 minutes if you're a fast reader, 30 minutes if you're not a fast reader, but maybe about 20 minutes. Really give you an idea of how the whole book works. The question here we want to look at today is what does it mean to know God and how do we know God? And throughout history, people have tried to answer that a number of different ways, but they have a lot of things in common when you think about it. So throughout history, you might think to yourself as a person living, I need rain to fall so my crops will grow so that I don't starve to death and I need my cows to not get sick and die. 
and I need my camels to have lots of camel babies. These sorts of things you might think about. And so what you need to do is you need to figure out a way in which you can get it to rain and your cows don't die and your camels have camel babies. And what people would do is they would determine, we think there's somebody in charge of this. There must be God who is in charge of this. And what I must do is figure out what must be done to get God to send rain down my crops, keep my cows from dying and keep my camels producing camel babies. And so therefore you would come up with things like, who do we need to throw in the volcano? It hasn't rained for 10 years. Somebody needs to be thrown in the volcano or some such thing. We would come up with something. Something must die. We must stop doing something. We must do something more because what we want to do is get this God who is in charge of these things that are important to us, we need to get him to favor us. The fancy word we use for that is we need to get him to bless us. Give us those things we either desire or those things we perceive that we, that we need. But when you really think about that way of knowing God, you aren't really knowing God in that situation. You are conducting business with God in that situation. You don't know him merely because you figured out what lever to pull to get him to produce rain. You don't have relationship with him in in any sense of fashion what's interesting about the apostle paul in looking at god in galatians 3 he wants us to know god in relationship in fact andy talked about it last week but look at verse 2 of galatians 3 let me ask you this did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith He describes our relationship with God as having received the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? It means God in the Spirit dwells within his people who have trusted him. So the Bible redefines knowing God from a transactional relationship to how do I impress God to get him to do what I want and says, no, what you should desire is a relationship with God where he dwells with you. We might say it this way. If God were in the room, would you want to hang out with him? Because he wants by his spirit to dwell within us, to make his dwelling among us. And that's what our goal should be. Not merely to do business with God, but to have friendship with God, relational community with God. And that's what Paul is going to talk about in Galatians 3, 15 to 20, is this. What is the best way to know God? What is the best way to know God? Let me give you the answer in the event that you find this message dull and you move on to other things. Here's the answer. The best way to know God is to trust that he keeps his promises because you can't be good enough to be good. The best way to know God is to trust that he keeps his promises because you can't be good enough to be good. Verses 15 through 18, let's think about this. We need to trust that he keeps his promises. Imagine this, some friends invite you over for dinner and your friends tell you, we have put a brisket on the Traeger and it has been cooking for 14 hours. And it is low and slow and tender. Are you hungry? This is probably not appropriate just for lunch. Deal with it. So they invite you over for dinner and you are going to enjoy brisket. You show up at the door, you knock on the door, you show up at their house, you knock on the door, and they answer the door, and they greet you, and they notice you holding in your hands on their porch pizza. And they say, well, 
Didn't we invite you out for brisket? Oh yeah, oh yeah, you did. However, we weren't certain you would actually provide brisket. So in the off chance that you didn't provide that which you promised, we brought pizza. We feel like we're covered. Yeah, how was that evening gonna go? That it started off awkward. The odds are you are going to enjoy pizza for dinner because you aren't eating that guy's brisket. <laughs> but here's the thing. It, you ought to have enjoyed what was provided merely because your friends made an invitation to you and made a, a promise to you. And perhaps in trusting that promise, you would have enjoyed the benefits of that invitation. That's exactly what our relationship with God looks like as we look at Galatians chapter 3. Like Abraham, I receive the inheritance from God when I rely on Jesus to keep his promises. Just like Abraham, when I rely on God to keep his promises, I receive from God all of his favor and blessing. Everyone who trusts God receives an inheritance from God, which is forgiveness of sin, relationship with God, and life with God forever that begins even now. And it is provided because God keeps his promises. Look at verse 15 of Galatians 3. God made a promise. Like with man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it after it's been ratified. If you have a covenant with somebody, they aren't supposed to change it. If you have a covenant with a mortgage lender and they tell you you have a certain rate of, uh, of your loan and they send you a letter, well, we decided to change it. If, if that wasn't in the agreement, you are probably gonna be upset unless it went down, which doesn't happen, right? So the assumption is a covenant is supposed to be unchanged. And verse 16, the promises God made, he made beginning with Abraham and those promises that God made to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ. That's what it says at the end of verse 16. They are referred to Christ. So let's look. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible says this. God is talking to the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve. God says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So the idea here is at the very beginning of the Bible, God is making it clear. The offspring of the woman is going to bring to end the works of the evil one. And now we can jump into the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse seven. Here's what God said to Abram. To your offspring... That's what Paul's referring to in Galatians 3. To your offspring, I will give this land. And therefore, Abram worshiped God. So God made a promise to Abram that he would have this land, that his offspring would receive this as a, a promise. More than that, God made this statement about Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God made a promise to Abraham. Your offspring will receive this land, and in your offspring, all of the earth is going to receive blessing. How does that promise work? Let's keep going. Galatians chapter 15, verse, did I say Galatians? Genesis chapter 15, verse six. If I say anything incorrect, I said it right, you heard it wrong. That's just how that works. Your ears are, something wrong with your ears. Abram did this in Genesis 15, six. Abraham, that is, he believed the Lord, 
and he, that is God, counted it, counted it to him as righteousness. God made a promise to Abram. Your offspring will receive this land. Your offspring will bless the whole earth. Abram said, oh yeah, I believe that. And God said, you're righteous. That's it. In fact, God then affirms the covenant in Genesis 15. God says to Abram, cut some animals in half, lay them out on the ground. So Abram cuts some animals in half, lays them out on the ground. Then God, in the form of a fire pot, passes through those animals. And this is totally bizarre, isn't it? But it's not bizarre for the reason you're thinking. You're thinking this is bizarre that animals are being cut in half. What's bizarre is who passed through the animals. See, this was a common covenant. This was a common covenant. A great and powerful king would invade a little tiny kingdom and would defeat them. In a little tiny kingdom, the king would come out and say, I pledge to you loyalty and will send you tribute. I love you and everything about you. And the great king would then say, bring some animals and cut them in half. And so they would do so. And then the little tiny king would walk through those animals. And as he walked through those animals, the little tiny king to the great king would declare, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals if I ever disown you, O great king. That's what, that's what this treaty was for. It was a, a personal promise. You can destroy me if I, if I ever bail on you, O great king. So God has the animals divide in half. And then who passes through the animals? Not Abram. He should have, but not Abram. So God passes through those animals. What is God saying as he's passing through those animals? May it be done to me if you ever break this covenant. And so God does a, a bizarre covenant and he makes this covenant with Abraham and what's Abraham's whole job in this covenant situation? Believe God. So Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not because Abraham was well behaved. He wasn't, have you read it? And not because Abraham was religious. He wasn't, there was no church to go to. Abram was made righteous because he believed God. He believed that God would keep his promise and that made Abraham righteous by faith. Let's go back to Galatians chapter three, verse 17 this time. Galatians chapter three, verse 17. This is what I mean. The law came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God to make the promise void. It's a legal argument. Abram received a promise from God. That was a long time ago. After that promise was made by God, a lot of people were born. Isaac, Jacob, Esau, lots of different people. Judah, Levi, Joseph, fancy coat. Yeah, you know, you, you know the story. 430 years later, Moses and the Israelites are now out in the wilderness and God comes down on Mount Sinai and they get the law. The law came later. When Moses received the law in Exodus, did God anywhere say, now that you have received the law, that promise I made to Abraham doesn't count anymore? No, he didn't do that. The law coming 430 years later does not cancel the promise that God made to Abram. The law comes in, in fact, to do a totally different job than what the covenant, the promise was designed to do. The law comes in to inform us about ourselves. The law comes in to convict us of the reality of our heart. The law comes in to help the people of Israel understand what it means to be identified as the people of God. 
but only the promise saves. Only the promise gives people the means by which they can have relationship with God. So this is what the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 is saying. Abraham received a promise by God and God intended when that promise was made for that promise to be fulfilled and finished in Jesus. That's, that's what he said in Galatians 3. In the meantime, there was a law that came in. And this law came in to do something other than save. It came in to tell us something about our heart. Oh, foolish Galatians. Why are you trying to use the law to save yourselves? It doesn't make any sense. Why in the world did you decide now you need to get circumcised? Why did you decide now you need to stop eating pork? So now all of a sudden you're going to rest on Saturday? Now all of a sudden, after all of this, you've decided to try and, because the thinking is, is real simple. Well, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus came from the Jewish people. And, and the Jewish people have this law. And it seems like at some point, good Christians shouldn't eat pork. Good Christians should get circumcised. Good Christians shouldn't drink alcohol. Good Christians should vote. I'm stopping. I'm, I don't know you well enough to go there. Because I don't know which way to go on that one. But that's what they do. Now all of a sudden, oh, no, 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 you're saved by faith. But if you don't, or if you do, then you weren't. And all of a sudden, we've decided the law sounds really, really handy. And we're going to try to get the law to do something it isn't designed to do. And that's what the, the foolish Galatians were doing. That's what foolish Christians have done throughout time. That's what all Christians do is we decide at a certain point we want to try and oppress God and others and save ourselves through our behavior, keeping our nose clean. But that's not what it's designed to do because the covenant promised to Abram never went away. Abram couldn't get saved by the law. Why? It didn't exist. It came later. And now we get saved not by the law, but by trusting the same God Abram trusted, Jesus. Verse 18. If inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abram by a promise. If, if, if we receive an inheritance of, of eternal life through the law, then that means the promise is canceled. What does it mean if the promise to Abraham is canceled? It means God lied to Abraham. That's what it means. If you get to save yourself by law-keeping, if you get to save yourself by behavior and obedience or a strict moral code, then God lied to Abraham. Uh, spoiler alert, God didn't lie to Abraham. God didn't lie. His promises are good. The way we know God is we trust that he keeps his promises. When we trust God keeps his promises, we receive an inheritance from God, which is forgiveness of sin the righteousness of Christ, eternal life with God that begins now but will be fulfilled one day in his kingdom and a role in his kingdom that will never end. The best way to know God is trust that he keeps his promises. Look uh, just for a minute. We're going to get to it in a minute, but at uh, verse 22 of Galatians 3. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It is written, that is the law, puts everything under sin. It defines for us, it provides the information for us of that which is identified as 
sinful, rebellious against God. But just because the, the law has provided that information for us does not mean the promise is invalid. The promise is still valid. Believe in Jesus, don't rely on the law. This is what it means to know God. And it was this way from the very beginning. This wasn't a new idea for God in the New Testament. This has been the, this has been the idea from the very beginning. The best way to know God is trust that he keeps his promises. If the law could give life, then God lied to Abraham and he didn't. Faith is the only way to have a relationship with God because no one can be good enough. So let's look at verses 19 through 22. The best way to know God, you can't be good enough to be good. You have to trust he keeps his promises and secondly, recognize you can't be good enough to be good. It's really important to understand that you need the right tool for the job, in any job. You need the right tool for the job. A few years ago, um, our house got broken into. Somebody broke into our house because they felt like us having our stuff was less important than them having our stuff. And so they broke into our house and they took some stuff. And one of the things they got into, we had a, a fire safe in our closet. And this is one of the, this is, let me be clear. I, it may seem like, as it obviously is, I'm, you didn't know this, but I wasn't gonna say anything, but I'll go ahead and tell you. Um, I'm heir to the vast uh, Spires family fortune. Um, that fortune is two buttons and a piece of yarn. That's what that fortune is. It's actually more of a liability than anything. But, so we had a fire safe. I say that because there was nothing really valuable in the fire safe. The fire safe contained documents that we would like to keep. And, and, and it was a cheap fire safe we bought at Walmart or something. So what this means, if there was a fire in the house, the ash in the fire safe, we would know is all the important documents. So what it really does <laughs> is properly organizes the ash. We can say, wow, this used to be in my passport. That was a really, it was a good picture. Now I gotta get a new one. It doesn't actually do anything. So when the, when the thieves break, broke into the house, they decided they wanted to open this safe. Now the thing is with these safes, they are not that hard to open. The combination is optional, really. The thing is, you have to do it right, and I don't want to insult you if you're a burglar, but <laughs> we aren't swinging for the fences on the IQ thing here. So they, were, they went out and got a cinder block out of my backyard, and they were pounding the door in. Now look, the, these things are real easy if you pop the door out. That door is never going in. It's never going to go in. So they realized, I think, I wasn't there, but they were realized at a certain point that that wasn't working. So they then went into my kitchen and they used everything in my kitchen to try and get that open the other way. All the silverware, all the knives. I didn't have a crowbar in the garage. I know that because they clearly looked for it and they looked really well. They didn't find it. Um, so everything in my kitchen they used to try and open that safe. None of those things were designed to open it. What they needed was a pry bar. The result was my insurance company bought me all new silverware, which was great. <laughs> but the important thing here is you can't open it unless you have the right tool. You need the right tool for the job. If your goal is to know God in, in relational connection, the law will not accomplish that job. If your goal is to know God, the law won't do it. It's just simply the wrong tool for the job. If you wanna have a relationship with God through a moral point system, that is you keep track in your own head if you're good enough, 
What that means is if you are good enough, God will like you and he won't be mean to you and make bad, sta- bad stuff happen to you. And if you are bad, then God will be tough on you. Here's my question. How is that not Christian karma? You know what karma is? Karma is this notion that if I do something good, the universe, the universe will provide something good for me. This is often worked out in practice in the, in the Starbucks drive-thru <laughs> where I will buy the coffee for the guy behind me. And this is a good deed. Think about it. One person who can afford Starbucks, because you're in line, buys coffee for another person who can afford Starbucks. How do I know he can afford Starbucks? He's in line. He didn't pull in and go, gee, I hope somebody, Lord. I mean, that's not what what happened. Like, if you want to be a good deed, buy Starbucks for somebody who can't afford Starbucks. Yeah, that's what, and here's what's even crazier. I buy somebody a $6 cup of coffee behind me. Who can afford six bucks? He can probably afford more than that. And I think in my mind, I'm now okay for not paying back my brother-in-law the thousand bucks I owe him. <laughs> See, I'm good now. I felt bad about being, uh, not paying my brother-in-law back, but since I bought a $6 cup of coffee for a guy who can afford a $6 cup of coffee, I don't have to pay my brother-in-law back. That doesn't make any sense. That's karma. That's how we live our Christian life. I gotta try and impress God, and I'm not even gonna do a good job at keeping points, keeping score. I'm going to assume that my $6 worth of good deeds is going to cover my $1,000 infraction. The law is the wrong tool for the job. Look at verse 19. Why then was the law added? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring. Who was that? Come on, the right answer in church is always Jesus. We know this. (laughs) Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So throughout history... God is making his move to redeem and save people. This started in in Genesis. Throughout history, God is working to redeem and save people by keeping his promises. The law is added to provide information about our condition. When you break your leg, you go into the doctor and they x-ray your leg. And they say, look at the x-ray. You snapped your leg. If the orthopedist says, since I x-rayed your leg, you're better get a new orthopedist because what the x-ray does is tell you the problem it doesn't fix it now you need something to fix the problem the law shows us our heart and we go oh man there is a problem up in here i have sin my sin has sin i'm all over the place in my rebellion if i then turn the law to fix that rebellion it will never work any more than an x-ray will fix your leg That's not what the law was intended to do. Romans chapter three, verse 20. Here's what Paul said there. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. How many people will be justified by the law? None, the math is easy. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the point of the law. To give you some information, you're a sinner. That's the point of the law. So the law does one job, and its job is not to provide a means of salvation. Let's keep going in Galatians 3, 19 and 20. The law 
was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, that's kind of weird. I'm not going to get too far into it, but if you look up Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, and you look in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, you'll see that it was common understanding that angels were somehow involved in the uh, transmitting of the law to Moses from God. And the point Paul is making in Galatians is this, is the law was handed to Moses from God by angels, meaning they mediated this uh, transaction, so to speak. However, the promise of God was not mediated. It was made directly from God to those in which he made it. Did angels talk to Abraham? No, God did. So do you want to deal with a law that doesn't fix your problem and came through a mediator or do you want to work with a covenant that came directly from God himself? And Paul's answer is, why wouldn't you want to deal through a promise with God? Something else about the law. Not only is it uh, doesn't provide uh, salvation, it provides information. Not only is it come through a mediator and not directly, so to speak, there's a, a final problem with the law. And it, we see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. I'm, I'm sorry for so many cross-references. And by I'm sorry, I mean, I'm happy. <laughs> but I say that. Anyway, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So here's another problem with the law. Every year you had to make a sacrifice. All the time you were making sacrifices. At some point, when you've made the same sacrifice for the 30th time, don't you go, I don't think this is working. If this worked, I shouldn't have to do it over and over again. We do this when we clean the bathtub. You put the cleaner down and you scrub it and it doesn't get clean. And your spouse will say to you, scrub harder. And what do we say? Get a better cleaner. I shouldn't have to scrub this hard. That's what he's saying here. If, you, if the law worked, why did the sacrifices have to be keep, keep being offered over and over and over again? In fact, because they had to be keep, keep being offered, that tells us it won't save you. It's not doing the job. They, because they have to be keep being offered over and over. The repetition affirms the law can't save you. Okay, back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Let's see what it says uh, there. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No, absolutely not. If the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have been through the law. But the law is not contrary to the promises of God. In fact, it works with the promises of God. It tells us what our problem is. That is, that we have a sin problem. So the law has a different purpose than the promise. The promise saves, the law provides information. Uh, one more cross-reference in Hebrews chapter 9. And by one more, meaning I have many, many more. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 9, he goes through this long discussion of the worship in the tabernacle, the priest being dressed in certain clothes and being laid out in a particular way and going on with blood on particular days and having the lamp stand out and the bread in the right place and all of these uh, preparations that uh, had to be made. And then in verse 9, he says this, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They deal only with food and drink and various washings. 
regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So we discover one other use for the law, and that is helping us regulate the passions of our heart. It's good that the people of Israel were told not to murder, isn't it? It's good the people of Israel were told to stay faithful to their spouse. It is good the people of Israel were told to take Sabbath. It's good that the people of Israel were told to pursue justice. It's good the people of Israel were told to care for the poor and the foreigner. These are all good things. The law was designed to restrain the passions of the human heart as a means of God's grace, helping us navigate life without all the pitfalls that comes with pursuing our own passions. However, it doesn't provide salvation. That comes in through faith in the promise of God. Let me keep reading in Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see what happened there? Genesis 15. What did God say as he walked through those animals? May it be done unto me if you don't keep this covenant. Did we keep the covenant? No, not even close. So what happened? He secured our redemption by his own blood. So the covenant made to Abraham, Jesus took all the way to the cross. It has always been and will always be. If you want to know God, it's because you trust he keeps his promises. How do we know he keeps his promises? A cross and an open tomb. He always keeps his promises, even if they're a long time coming. Look at verse 22, and we'll conclude. And as you know, me saying we're going to conclude means absolutely nothing. <laughs> Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law does a lot, gives us information, it restrains our passions, tells us something about what God is like, but all are determined. Everyone, according to the law, is determined to not be good enough. No one can keep it. We need to be delivered from the law. How are you delivered from under the law? You die. The law does not apply to dead people. If you are on trial for a crime and you die before the trial, they do not hold the trial. They can't, it's over, you're dead. You've already covered it. In Galatians chapter two, verses 19 and 20. For I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live. In the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who died for me and gave himself for me. If you are dead, the law doesn't apply to you. If you have trusted Jesus, you died with Jesus. The law no longer applies. It no longer has sway over you. It merely doesn't apply because it doesn't apply to dead people. Let's look at that just a little bit more closely. Romans chapter seven, verse four, Paul says this. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. 
See that? The law can't save you. In fact, in receiving salvation through faith in Christ, you have died to the law and its obligations no longer apply. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, Paul says it this way. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all by our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, that is the law. This, the law, he set aside, what do you do? Nailing it to the cross, there it is. Oh, foolish Galatians. Why in the world would you want to behave your way into heaven? Why in the world would you want to try and impress God with your fancy religious behavior to get him to favor you? You get that by trusting Jesus only. The best way to know God is to trust he keeps his promises because you can't be good enough to be good. One last argument in this regard, and this one's personal, so sorry, not sorry. The law doesn't work and you know it, so let me do a little test, a little thinking test with you. There is probably something in your life, if you've been alive more than 10 minutes, that you look back on and you really, really regret. And even me bringing it up, pop something in your head and you're like, man, wish that would have gone down different. <clears throat> that was so stupid. We, we all have that. We call that shame and regret. But maybe you're like many of us and, and you look back on that regret and you've tried to make amends. Maybe you talked to the people you offended. Maybe you even sought to make a compensatory damage to, to someone you, you wronged. Maybe you tried to correct your behavior so that that part of your life is no longer in your current reality. And you've, you've done these things and those are right and good things to do. You've done these things to make amends for that wrong. The question is this, when your head hits the pillow at night and you're left alone with your thoughts and your God, is there ever a time where that shame pops up and you go, man, you ever had that happen? That means the law didn't work. Because if it worked, it wouldn't happen anymore. And you know it. You have tried to be good your way out of your shame and you can't do it. Doesn't that drive you bonkers? Like, no, I fixed it. And then you lay your head, it's not even somebody nagging you. It's your own thoughts driving you nuts. That tells you the law doesn't work. Oh, foolish Galatians. Why are you trying to be good your way into a good relationship with God? You know it doesn't work. I don't know you all that well, but you're not good enough to be good. I don't even have to know you. I just have to know my Bible. The best way to know God is to simply trust he keeps his promises. Now, there are some of us here who are really, really good at being good. I don't know who they are. I'm not one of them. I'm terrible at being good. But there are people who just seem to have this skill to, to say the right thing. And, and when tempting situations arise, they go, oh, no thanks. The rest of us are like, whoa, I'm in. <laughs> and, and we know these people. They're just really well behaved. However, even for you, if you just happen to be one of those people, God bless you, that you know how to keep your ducks in a row. That is a burden too great to bear in your relationship with God. It's just a matter of time, and that will be too heavy, too long. You have tried to impress everybody around you and keep God heavy, happy. At a certain point, you will collapse under the weight of that. It's not sustainable. The only way to know God is okay with you is to trust he's good enough to keep his own promises. Jesus saves sinners, even good ones. 
even ones who are really well behaved. Let me put it this way. Old shame and old regret eats your good deeds for lunch. It won't work. The only way you're gonna move past shame and regret is to trust Jesus actually dies for sinners like you and that he will in fact keep his promise, that he's good with you because he's a promise-keeping kind of God. You're saved by faith. You walk this life by faith. We're going to walk into the glory of God by faith. We trusted Jesus to forgive us of our sins. How do I know Jesus and I are still okay today? How do I know as a Christian that Jesus and I are still okay today? Is it because I read my Bible? Is it because I showed up to church on a really nice day out and I could be on the Deschutes? Is it because I was polite to somebody I didn't know at the store? No. I know Jesus and I are okay today because he keeps his promises. That's it. Has nothing to do with how good of a Christian you are. You can be the A-plus gold star Christian. Number one, nobody's impressed. Certainly God isn't. He is impressed with you because Jesus is impressive. That's why. Do you trust him? Finally, this. Trusting God is really, really hard if you think God is mean. And we gotta, we gotta deal with the reality of this. You don't trust people that you think are jerks. And if you think God is a meanie, it is gonna be really hard to trust him day in and day out. That's, now, and the, the reality of this is, for many of us, certainly in a room like this, there are many of us, we have gone through some tough stuff. I mean, some tough stuff. Some, some psalmist kind of stuff, laying in bed, clenched fists to the skies. What are you doing? Ever had that kind of prayer? And it is hard in those moments often to know that God isn't mean. But the, the way in which we navigate our relationship with God is by faith. So it means we have to trust God, in fact, for two things. Number one, he keeps his promises. Number two, that even in the toughest things of life, he's good. He's kind and he favors us. Now, it doesn't answer the question as to why he's up to what he's up to. I got plenty of those questions myself. But the one thing we can know by faith is even in the midst of those darkest of hours, he's good, he's kind, and he favors us. Not because we're awesome, but because Jesus is. God, we thank you for these moments that we've been able to reflect on how you operate. We must admit, God, the reality is we want to earn our way to you so we can take some credit. The reality is, God, many of us, even though we may not say it out loud, we recognize that our best efforts haven't been that great and they haven't done the job. God, I pray in this moment right now that you would do a work in our hearts that we would finally, as those who follow you, say, I'm done trying to impress God with my good life. Instead, I'm going to live my life to glorify God because he kept his promises. Would you allow us, God, to experience the warmth of your favor today, recognizing that no matter what our past holds or our future holds, we have favor and blessing with you because Jesus died for sinners like us. And God, I would pray for those of us who are here this morning that don't know you have not experienced yet that hope that comes by trusting you keep your promises. I pray even in this moment 
that they would reach out to you in faith and trust that you save sinners because you keep your promises. We thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Christ. We pray, God, that you would keep us close to you to the very end. In his name we pray, amen.